Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Uh, welcome to Journey Church. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this morning we are wrapping up the first section of a 30-week series we are doing through the Sermon on the Mount. The first section covers what are called the Beatitudes. And we get the word beatitude from the way in which each of these short but powerful sayings begins with the phrase blessed. So beatitude means to be blessed. And I think it's important that in our cultural environment, we push a little bit further into this concept of blessedness in order to rightly understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. We've touched on this a little bit as we've gone through each of the previous Beatitudes, but given that this is the last one, I figured a culminating wrap-up kind of comment about it. And it's important to understand what we're talking about because in our culture, the concept of being blessed has been co-opted and often applied in circumstances which Jesus would not recognize it. So a few years back, the New York Times fashion page ran a story on this social media concept of feeling blessed. Here's what Jessica Bennett, the author, noted about the blessed life. She says, here are a few ways in which apparently God has touched my social network over the past few months. He helped a friend get accepted into graduate school. She was so blessed to have been there. He made it possible for a yoga instructor's Caribbean spa retreat, so blessed to be teaching in paradise. He helped a new mom outfit her infant with a tiny designer frock, a year of patiently waiting, and it finally fits, hashtag blessed. And she, or he graced the, a colleague with 57 Facebook wall postings about her birthday. So blessed for all the love, she wrote to her approximately 900 uh, closest friends. Bennett continues, God has in fact recently blessed my network with dazzling job promotions, coveted speaking gigs, wonderful fiance, the most wonderful fiancés ever, front row seats at Fashion Week, and nominations for many a 30 under 30 list. And then get this, she writes, there's nothing quite like invoking the holy as a way to brag about your life. To a certain extent, each of these examples of the hashtag blessed life is understandable. I mean, after all, the word blessing that we see in the Sermon on the Mount and the word beatitude, they come from the Greek word makarios, which translated in most ancient literature is happy. So if you think happiness is something shallow, just keep in mind that Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics, one of the most important books for virtue in the ancient world, used the word makarios, happiness, to describe the virtuous person. So there's something taking place here where you have this robust word, happiness, means something slightly different than we tend to think it does, but... The cursory reading of the Beatitudes would reveal that they are borderline incomprehensible to our ears if we have been enculturated and catechized in a world of the hashtag blessed life versus the world of the Beatitudes blessed life. 
And so it's important as we get started this morning to think about uh, what it means to rightly position our hearts in order to hear the surprising message of blessing, happiness, and flourishing that Jesus has for us. In his ministry, Jesus referred to this as having the ears to hear. So let's pray this morning and ask the Lord for the ears to hear his message about the blessedness of persecution. Heavenly Father, we, your children, gather here to hear from you, not from me this morning, but to hear your word from your text. So I pray for myself, as I have prayed many times in reflecting on this text and writing this sermon and researching what it means here, and I ask one more time that you make the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth honoring and glorifying in your sight, edifying in the ears and hearts of my brothers and sisters gathered here. Would you speak through this text to your people this morning? Would these words, though few, carry the cosmic weight of divine speech? Lord, there are some in this room who need encouragement. You, their father, I ask that you encourage your children this morning. There are some in this room who may need correction, and father, I ask that you would correct your children this morning. There are some in here who need some kind of embrace. They need some kind of revelation of your presence and favor, some kind of touch from you and Father. I pray that you be present with them this morning. There are some in here who need to know your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And Father, would you show your grace and mercy and forgiveness to your children this morning? Lord, you have drawn, called, brought each of us out here from a unique life, a life set apart by sins and struggles and circumstances which differ from each other person in this room. But you know what we need, and so, Lord, we pray that you grant us the ears to hear what you would say to us as individuals, to us as families, to us as your gathered church. We are yours. We give you this morning. Use it as you will. Amen. Considering that this is our last sermon on the Beatitudes, though not the last one on the Sermon on the Mount, I thought it would be good to get a running start. So we are going to, I'm going to read our text, but I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, so we can sort of set the scene for what's taking place in the sermon. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he, speaking of Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, all those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. 
And here's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you or persecute you or utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if we're setting the scene, what we see here is is Jesus has come and he started to proclaim a message that the kingdom of God has drawn near to God's people. And people are bringing to him all all sorts of people with various diseases and afflictions, some spiritual, some mental, some physical, and he is healing them. He is casting out demons. He is opening the eyes of the blind. He is letting the paralytics walk. He is healing all who come to him. He is setting in its proper order the fallen creation. And crowds are increasing in size, but Jesus' ministry philosophy is not simply to draw large crowds. Rather, he wants to see his message of the kingdom go throughout all of the world to the ends of the earth. And so he wants to call together a group of people who, filled with his spirit and sent by his word, will go out to the ends of the earth taking the message of the kingdom. And so seeing the crowds, he does not reject the crowds, but he withdraws from the crowds, much like we have done this morning. You did not reject your friends, family, and neighbors who were non-believers, but you withdrew from the rest of community to come here to hear something from the Lord that would train you to go out and do the work of ministry. So too, Jesus draws his disciples up the mountain to him in order that he might train them to send them out to do the work of ministry. And he says, flourishing are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They are happy, those who lack spiritual resources. They are happy, they will flourish, they are blessed, those who mourn their lack. They are happy and they flourish, those who humble themselves in recognition of their sorry spiritual estate. Those who long for the spiritual currency and nourishment of the kingdom, which is righteousness. Those who show mercy to others, knowing they need it desperately themselves. Those who seek God with a singularness and a faithfulness of heart, because they know he is the only answer to the thing that ails them. Those who desire and strive for peace, rather than give in to the division and fighting of a fallen world and those who are persecuted for the sake of my name, happy are they. Can you feel the the tension and the discontinuity between how our culture and world regularly presents happiness or flourishing or the good life and what Jesus is saying here? How can we Christians even think of the blessedness of persecution? I mean, in effect, this is maybe the strangest of all the Beatitudes. I mean, what rattles someone's faith and someone's identity and someone's feeling of standing with God more than suffering when they think they are doing well? There's a growing false gospel in our culture, which is generally referred to as the prosperity gospel. And where it comes from is a very human belief that we can cut a deal with God and we can strike a bargain that if I obey, if I obey right here, if I obey what you put in here, then you have to give me what I want. You have to give me 
the life I desire, be that life of finances, be it uh, material, be it familial, be it social, be it sexual, be it financial, be it vocational. You owe me if I do that. But God has none of striking that bargain with us. And this false gospel is responsible today for many that you may have experienced, that you may have heard about, but many of the deconversions that are taking place in our story, where people who believe themselves to be Christians and Christians that would attend a church like ours, they go, I cut a deal with God when I was a kid, and he hasn't held up his end of the bargain. And so they walk away from the faith saying, it's, it doesn't make good on its promises. But we know that to be a false gospel because this true gospel that Jesus proclaims has built into its very foundation in the first teaching Jesus gives in the gospel of Matthew. He says, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake. And if those words come out of our Savior's mouth, then there is no room for cutting a bargain with God in some form of prosperity gospel. But this is still the question before us this morning. How is it that we Christians can say, blessed are those who are persecuted? In order to answer that question, we need to get kind of a a picture of what is taking place in this text. We need to understand how this text relates to what comes immediately before it. And we need to understand what Jesus means by the phrase persecution. So let's think about this. Uh, The first thing we notice about this text, and my guess is you saw it too, is that this is both the last beatitude and the only beatitude which Jesus immediately expands upon. In doing so, Jesus is telling us something important about this. Uh, Pastor Jim, as he has preached many of these Beatitudes, he has commented on their interrelatedness, how each of the Beatitudes holds on to the one that came before it. How the poor in spirit then leads into the mourning, how mourning leads into desiring, hungering, and thirsting for righteousness, how each of these is related together to build a chain, a chain which culminates not climaxes, doesn't reach the apex, that is most likely pure in, uh, pure in heart, but which culminates right here. And blessed are the persecuted. In effect, the, per- the topic of persecution, both its placement and its treatment in the text, tells us those who live a life radically oriented by the previous Beatitudes are likely to face persecution. The persecution is not, a, is not something that's negotiable for the Christian life, but it is a likely result of a life lived in accordance with the preceding Beatitudes. In effect, if we live a life marked by these traits, which tell us of a, a radically God-oriented, God-word, God-directed life, we will probably face some form of persecution. Well, what is it then that we will face? What is it that Jesus means when he says persecution? If you're like me, and this is in your notes, but if you're like me, you probably think of persecution uh, both less than you're supposed to and more than you're supposed to. So let's think about this. How is the way we normally think of persecution 
more than we think it is. Well, uh, it is more in that when we, we think it is that which is tied directly to our profession of faith and resulting in a re- righteous life. In verse 10, Jesus connects persecution to the phrase, for righteousness' sake. We can define righteousness, by the way, as simply your moral standing before God. When God thinks about your life, when he thinks about your morality, your ethics, he thinks in terms of the language of righteousness. And Jesus expands on this, and he says in verse 11, on my account. So he adds those two phrases together. So persecution is something connected to the righteousness of our lives, and it is something connected to on account of Jesus' name. In other words, Jesus is saying that persecution, the persecution he is speaking of, is only endured either on the basis of our external acts of righteousness, which are prompted and overflow from our heart by the gospel, or our testimony that our righteousness, our moral standing before God, is found in Christ and Christ alone. You see, everybody else in this world, they want to say, if, if God does exist and I stand before him, here's all the good things that I have done, here's how I have lived my life, and therefore he should accept me. And Jesus says, well, it is either because of the righteous way in which you live, which will be in discord with this world, or it is because you say, no, myself, like you, our righteous standing is not based on this pile of works we have done, but it is based off of the work which Jesus Christ has done. If we were to take these and frame it negatively, then we would say persecution is not experiencing the consequences or results of our foolishness or bad behavior. Nor is it simply facing injustice. There are many people in our world who face injustice, and yet they do not do so for the cause or name of Christ. And while we want to dignify that, while we want to honor that, while we should grieve injustice in our world, persecution is specifically injustice endured for the cause and name of Jesus. Another reason why persecution is often more than we think it is, is it is something done to us as an individual. You see, Jesus takes this beatitude and he switches from third person to second person. He says in all the previous beatitudes, blessed are those, blessed are that kind of people. And then he switches and he says, blessed are you. Because what he is trying to do is drive this home and make it personal. In other words, persecution is not when some talking head on TV or some blowhard on social media says something negative about Christians. Persecution is when somebody comes for you and your reputation. It is a personal affront, a personal challenge. Persecution is often less than we think it is, however, because so many of us, if you are like me, think about persecution merely in terms of physical violence. I once heard a uh, popular conference speaker and author uh, downplay the insults and uh, slanders said about another particular Christian because he said that brothers and sisters across the globe are facing violence in other countries. While that is true, and while that can be helpful for us to adjust and shift our perspective, the fact of the matter is that Jesus in this text dignifies two times verbal assaults on our character. 
He says, blessed are you when others revile you. Blessed are you when others utter all sorts of evils against you. And so though we might think persecution is more in that we, we limit it to physical violence, Jesus says, no, it also obtains when it is verbal slander. And the reason is complex. It has to do with the psychology, the kind of people, the kind of things God made us to be. But we often get in a wrong mode of thinking, which is understandable because many of us taught our kids, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I can tell you right now, before I walked with Jesus, the most, the deepest the wounds I had made in other people's lives were words I had said that cut to their hearts. The things which I have done which have had the most enduring negative impact on my friends and family were when my words cut them. Christ here dignifies the fact that we can be assaulted physically, but we can also be assaulted verbally. But he raises the bar by saying that persecution must be on the basis of his name, and it must be directed to us as individuals or as a small group of people, like a local church. It is into this framework which Jesus constructs when he speaks, blessed are the persecuted. So how can that be? How can we consider a persecuted person blessed? Well, the first thing to point out is that persecution is itself not the blessing. Some of us may misunderstand that and think, I'm so blessed, look at all the suffering I've endured. Well, you may be blessed, but persecution is itself not the experience of suffering. We are not masochists looking for people to persecute us. Rather, persecution leads to blessing because persecution comes after what we already have access to. The persecuted are blessed, they are happy, they flourish because they already have access to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' disciple Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Present tense, you right now are blessed. Why? Not because you are insulted, but... Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, it's not a blessing because you suffer. It is the thing which brought about the suffering, which is the blessing. The fact that the spirit of God, the spirit of glory, the way of Christ is in you. Both Jesus and Peter are saying that blessings are right now in terms of status and resources of the kingdom. And so we should not be surprised, but rather, when we, when we encounter persecution, when we encounter suffering, we should look to that status, and we should look to draw on those resources. And you might ask, well, what, what are those? I, if I'm enduring persecution, what are the things that I can look to? I don't think there's a more clear passage that puts so many of them in such a concentrated form than in Romans 8. In Romans 8, in verses 12 through 17, 
Paul writes this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, and if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Did you hear that? Paul says that some of the blessings of the kingdom are heaven, of heaven is that we have received a spirit, and this is not a spirit of slavery, but it is a spirit of adoption. And the spirit of adoption inside of us cries out when we are silent. He cries out for us, Abba, Father, praying to God, provoking us to prayer, to go to God, to draw on his resources. The Holy Spirit resides in you, and when you doubt, Paul says, in the courtroom of your doubts, the Holy Spirit stands up and he objects to the accusations being made. And the Holy Spirit testifies to your spirit, no, if you are in Christ, then you are a son of God. Think about that in light of persecution. If persecution for righteousness sake for the name of Jesus is when we most doubt our identity, when we most doubt God's favor upon us, when we most doubt whether or not we're blessed, the Holy Spirit inside is standing up and saying, do not doubt. Jesus has died for you. Whatever sin, whatever temptation, whatever circumstance has brought about this, I am in you. And if I am in you, then the Father smiles upon you. And the Spirit of Christ defends you in the courtroom of your own heart. Logically, Paul says that if we are children of God, then we are heirs of Christ. Well, what will Christ receive? What does he inherit as God's heir? The kingdom of heaven and the earth. And so he says right now, you stand in that status as a co-heir with Christ. Paul goes on to link this to persecution. He says, all of these things are true provided we suffer with him. We endure that which the world will throw at us. And in Romans 8, 18 through 25, Paul projects these blessings out into the future. It's a glorious passage. I recommend you go and read it, but today we are thinking about how we are blessed right now with the promises. So we'll pick this up in verse 26. Romans 8, 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes, for whom he foreknew he predestined for, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here Paul says, the Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness. 
one of the blessings, one of the resources available to you right now in the kingdom is the fact that when temptation comes your way, the Holy Spirit stands there ready to empower you to resist temptation, to push back against sin. Right now, you have the capability of resisting sin and temptation. And if you hate sin, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus spoke of earlier in the Beatitudes, then right now, that power is available to you. Though you were a slave to sin before, now you have freedom because the Holy Spirit dwells inside. Another blessing of the kingdom is that even when you don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit inside of you prays on your behalf. It says that he intercedes before the Father for you. In effect, Paul will go on to tell you that you have two intercessors, that when God in heaven looks down upon you, if you feel too weak to pray, simultaneously at the throne is Christ Jesus who justifies and the Holy Spirit who pray for you. We are to pray, but when we feel weak, when we do not know what to pray, when, we, when circumstances overwhelm us, one of the blessings of the kingdom of heaven is that the Holy Spirit does our job for us. The Holy Spirit also builds up us in love. Love of God and the Father, working all of this mess in our lives and in the world for our good. Specifically, God has set about the work of crafting us into the character of Jesus Christ, shaping our hearts so that they look like the heart of the King. And don't miss this, brother or sister Christian, if you struggle with self-doubt because, because of what takes place in your life, because of sin and temptation, here is one of the blessings of the kingdom. You are right now justified. That in this world, many people experience a kind of cosmic dread when upon them comes fear and thoughts of God. In fact, one of my favorite atheistic philosophers referred to this as a cosmic authority problem. He wrote this in his philosophy book, The Last Word. He said, speaking of fear of religion, I do not mean to refer entirely to a reasonable hostility towards certain established religions, religious institutions, in virtue of their objectionable moral doctrines, social policies, or political influence. So what he's saying there, this is an atheist going, I'm talking about people who fear religion, and I am not saying that we fear it because they have too much political influence. We don't like that. I'm not saying because they have moral standards which we think are objectionable. I'm not saying all of these social policies. When I am speaking of fear of religion, I'm speaking of this. I am talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. And I speak from experience being strongly subjected to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and I naturally hope, as all people do, that I am right in my belief. It is that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to live in a universe like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition that is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. That's Thomas Nagel, uh, a late uh, philosopher, writ 
written in his book, The Last Word. And what he's talking about there is when he contemplates the universe, when he contemplates what he sees, like the lightning storm we experienced last night, he contemplates a universe that exists at the will and by the power of a God, and he says, I do not want to live in a world like that because he has what he calls a cosmic authority problem. But here's how this affects you, friend. You stand before that cosmic authority already justified. You, unlike this philosopher, do not need to fret or fear about what lies beyond what we can see with our eyes because God himself is for you. In fact, Paul goes on to say this in Romans 31 through 39, building to the crescendo of this chapter. He says, what then shall we say if God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him give us graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who will condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things, brother and sister Christian, you are more than conquerors. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come nor powers or heights or depths nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is the heavenly blessing. God is for you. When all else stands against you, when persecution comes, when trial and tribulation comes, when the temptations of Satan whisper in your ear, God is for you. God holds all things together for you. God, who has parted the seas, who has ordained the rising and falling of many nations, who has turned the hearts of kings, who has closed the jaw of lions, who has loosed the tongue of the mute, who has opened the eyes of the blind, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, brothers, is for you right now. This is not some promise laid out in a nebulous future. It is present, regardless of circumstances. What would you trade that for? Maybe wealth, or a promotion or a raise at work, health or beauty, fame or recognition, career success or familial fulfillment, relationships, to be loved and esteemed by our friends, colleagues, or persons of influence? Would you trade it for power or responsibility or sexual or material satisfaction? Or look at it from a different angle. Rather than what you would trade it for, Paul puts directing our attention to our circumstances. He says, would you give it up if you face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, violence, or oppression? Each of these circumstances will challenge us in one of two directions. They may challenge us to wonder if God's love for us has faded or been exhausted or simply has ceased. Paul tells us these circumstances bear no weight on God's love. There is no height or depth or power or force. There is nothing in existence which can pry 
Christ's love for you from his heart. It is locked and sealed. The other way it can tempt us is it can lead us to believe that the love of God is not worth it. But circumstances come and circumstances go, and the blessings of the kingdom available right now are eternal. And notice, by the way, of everything we encountered in Romans 8, it is all tied to who God is, how you have been adopted by the Father, have you been ministered to by the Spirit, how you have been loved by the Son. Because the real thing you need to understand if you will endure persecution, if you are to believe that blessed are the persecuted, is a twofold truth. First, that God right now is for you, and he is the ultimate treasure of heaven. When we get to heaven, even if the streets are literally made of gold, even if everything is pristine and you can think of all the riches and grandeur that heaven would offer, if all of those things are true, they will still pale in comparison to the fact that you, as he said in Matthew 5, 5, see God, that he is the true treasure of the kingdom of heaven. And that right now, this is the second part of the truth, right now, through Jesus Christ, you have access to him as his adopted child. Here then is the flourishing and the happiness and the blessedness of persecution. That the one who is, is, uh, the one who is persecuted is blessed because true flourishing is not circumstantial. But it is dependent upon our living a radically Godward life because that is what we were made for. We were made to live as our Savior lived. Think about this. In the Beatitudes, they are not merely characteristics that we are to embody. They are characteristics that Jesus took on in himself. And they are characteristics which rightly understood proclaim the gospel to us. For what is the gospel... What is the gospel other than that Jesus Christ, though accessing the riches and comfort of the kingdom of heaven, became poor so that we might access the riches and, kingdom, the riches and comfort of the kingdom of heaven? And what is the gospel but that when Jesus mourned and grieved for our sin, he did so to the point of being able to bear its weight on the cross so that we might be comforted? And what is the gospel but the message that Jesus, though do all honor and dignity and glory, humbled himself and became meek that we might inherit the earth. And what is the gospel but that though we desired no mercy from God, though we deserved no mercy from God, Jesus, his only son, upon the cross hung, not receiving God's mercy such that we might. And what is the gospel that that Jesus, though pure in heart, experienced God turning away from him, such that hanging on the cross, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lam sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that so that God could look upon you and you could see God. And what is the gospel but the message that the ultimate peacemaker, the true son of God, bore God's wrath on his shoulders that you and I might be called God's sons? And what is the gospel but that Jesus, the one who was ultimate righteousness embodied, was persecuted for that righteousness that we might inherit the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Beatitudes. He is the ultimate embodiment of the Beatitudes. He experienced persecution. So too we likely will. John 15, 
says this, for the world hates you. Know that it also hated me before it hated you. For if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. New Testament expert Grant Osborne says, the basic message of the whole New Testament on persecution and suffering is that Christ's followers should expect to face the same hatred and oppression he did. In fact, this is the primary fellowship and oneness with him. Osborne also helpfully reflected on how we ought to think about persecution. He said, there are three levels at which we should proclaim this in society where persecution rarely happens. One, the world as a whole, there, uh, in the world as a whole, uh, there is more oppression of Christians than ever before, and we should mourn with those who mourn. Kenyon prayed for our missionaries. Many of them may face persecution, and even if we don't, we should mourn alongside them. Two, as our society becomes increasingly secular, persecution could come soon, and we must be ready for it. And three, many today are so afraid of being made fun of, let alone being persecuted, that they compromise their walk. As I conclude, I just want to give a brief reflection on that third concept. Historically, the church has feared the raised fist or the raised sword. We now fear a raised voice or the quizzically raised eyebrow. The look of incredulity which a friend, family member, or colleague may look upon us when they realize how alien we are for what we believe. Brothers and sisters, let me first tell you this. You are, in fact, alien. Scripture tells you that you are a sojourner, a traveler, that you do not belong to this world, but are on your way to a future kingdom. Until it arrives, you are an emissary or an ambassador of its king. You are an alien to this world. Second, we need to look, we need to work, moreover, we need to work on fearing God and not man. If we can learn to fear God because of his awesome power and majesty, if we can understand what we read in Romans 8, that God is for us to the point of adopting us, then it will not matter how hard someone swings at you, it will not matter how viciously somebody slanders you, it will not matter how quickly or loudly they cancel you. All you will think is forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And you in that day will be blessed, and you will rejoice, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we affirm the holiness of your character and your name. Your name is so holy that our Jewish forebearers would not dare say it, but simply reverently called you the Lord. We happily draw near you, Yahweh, in prayer and worship because you have substituted the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our place. And more than knowing you simply by personal name, we know you by the child's utterance. Abba, Father. 
So, Father, we pray for your kingdom that it would come. We pray for the love and peace and joy and righteousness of Jesus Christ to descend upon us as individuals and us as a church. And we pray, Abba, that your will be done in our hearts. We pray that your will be done in our lives. And that as we move through our varying vocations of life, be they friendships, student or employee, employer, teacher, leader, husband, wife, father, mother, son, friend, or daughter, whatever stage of life we find ourselves in, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.